Romans 12. We'll be in verses 14 through 21 this evening. Romans 12, verses 14 through 21. Allow you a little bit of time to open to that passage. Allow me to read it for us. Please follow along, if you can, verses 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, uh, sorry, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Allow me to pray one last time as we begin. Lord God, we thank you so much for your love. God, we thank you. For how vast it is, how gracious it is, how unchanging it is. We thank you even while we were your enemies, you loved us. Lord, I pray that you would show us your love tonight. That you would stir in us a love for others, even for those who persecute us, even for our enemies. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would work through us tonight. God, that you would protect my words, that I would speak your truth. Lord, I pray that I would not be a distraction or hindrance to your word and your your truth. God, that you, by your grace, would work mightily in our hearts tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. A few years ago, uh, I was... Helping run a garage sale. You guys ever do garage sale? Uh, is Rue here, by the way? Is she? Okay. Yes. Yeah, there you go, Rue. Uh, and, and I was... Uh, how many of you guys know the Simmons? Drew and Rosie Simmons? Some of you guys know. They they used to live here. In fact, they were living at... Uh, in an, uh, like, in-law unit at my in-law's house. It's kind of weird. Anyways. Um, and they're moving to Italy. They moved to Italy, I think, I think a couple years ago. And so they wanted to do a garage sale because they were selling all their stuff. And they, I live nearby. And they're like, hey, would you help us run it? I was like, sure, I'd love to. I love doing things like that. Uh, and so it was, at one point, it was around lunchtime, in fact. Everyone was in the house eating lunch. And I was like, you know, I'm going to stay out here and just kind of manage things on my own for a bit. And there wasn't a lot of traffic. But then this one elderly lady um, somewhere – over the pond, her accent sounded like she she was from that side of the world. In any case, she was elderly, and she comes up, and she's kind of looking around stuff, she wasn't interested, and as she's kind of walking back towards her car, she sees a pomegranate tree, again, this is my my in-law's tree, uh, right there 
in the front yard. And she's looking at it, and she calls me over, and she says, are, are the pomegranates for sale? And I said, uh, not really, but if, if you if you want to buy some, then then sure. And she's like, yeah, I do. How much how much would you sell them for? And I'm like, ah, I don't know. How about I'll, I'll give you five pomegranates for three dollars? Like, like that's a reasonable price, right? No. No, you have to put it What do you mean? I mean, at least for five, at least ten bucks. Uh, okay, for five, at least ten bucks. So I was giving her a good deal, right? So I said, all right, how about five pounds for three bucks? And her response was, ah! and she slapped me across the face. And I, I just stood there, shook. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. And she goes, what? Fine, I'm going to Costco. And then she gets in her car and storms off. And I, I, I didn't know what to do. I, I, so I went inside and I told everyone, guys, I just got slapped in the face by an elderly woman. Now, I, I, I don't typically view myself as someone who makes enemies often. <laughs> but that day, I became an enemy to that little old lady. Because I was trying to sell her five pomegranates for $3. Now, maybe, uh, hopefully you guys haven't experienced something like that in your life. I hope not. But maybe you have enemies in your life. Maybe you don't. Uh, I, 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 the enemies you may have in your life, they're, they're not – don't think of like, well, I don't have any like Marvel villains in my life, so I have no enemies. Uh, that, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, maybe there are people in your life who hate you or strongly dislike you or maybe people in your life that you hate or strongly dislike. Maybe there are people in your life who persecute you. Maybe there are people in your life who, who are against you for some reason or you're against them for some reason. Regardless of the degree or the context of these enemies, the, the, the question that the Christian must ask themselves is, how do I respond to my enemies, to my persecutors, in a way that honors and glorifies God? And that's what we're going to look at tonight, is how we can love our enemies. And maybe you say, well, I, I don't even have any enemies, so this really doesn't apply to me. Well, then I would at least say this. If this is what God's word says on how we are to respond to our enemies, then how much more should we respond this way to those who are of lesser degree of our, quote, enemies? Paul is talking about living a sacrificial life to God. And last week we looked at love. And specifically we looked at loving one another, other Christians, you might remember, that Christians are to have a love for other Christians. And we looked at what that means and we looked at what that looks like. But now here, Paul shifts his attention and he takes it a step further. And he says, not only should we have love for other Christians in these great sacrificial ways, but we are also to love our enemies. So tonight we're going to be looking at what it means to love our enemies. And specifically, the context focuses on those who persecute us. Really, a, a, a real severe enemy in that way. But first, we're going to look at that, that the Christian is to love the enemy who persecutes them. And then we're going to look at the different ways in which the Christian is to love their enemy and what that looks like. All right? So that's where we're going tonight. First, in verse 14, we see that we are to love the enemy who persecutes. Love the enemy who persecutes. He says, 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And we're going to look at two subpoints for this main point of love the enemy who persecutes. The first is this. Living a sacrificial life to God will bring on persecution. Living a sacrificial life to God will bring on persecution. Remember this is in the context of 12 verse 1 and 2 and, and, and live, offering up our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, not being conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then he lists out how we are to live the sacrificial life. And then he says, bless those who persecute you. Living a sacrificial life to God will bring on persecution. Now, typically when people are trying to sell something or, or, or convince you of something, right? They, they want to tell you about all the good stuff and usually want to leave out the bad stuff. This was not the case with Jesus. This was not the case with the early church. In fact, listen to what Jesus said in John 15, 18 through 20. John 15, 18 through 20. You, you've heard this before, but listen again with this in mind. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I mean, he says it pretty clearly. There's, there's, there's no fine print. There's no bait and switch. If you are going to be a follower of Jesus, the world will hate you. You will receive persecution. Are there blessings? Are there joys to following Jesus? Of course, of course there are. Immense joys and blessings. Immeasurable, eternal. But there's also hardship. And sacrifice and discipline. If we are to follow Christ, if we are to associate ourselves with him, if we are to have union with him, then we ought to expect to receive the same kind of rejection as he received. Christian, in living a sacrificial life to God, you must expect to receive persecution from the world. As we said last week, if you are seeking to live a Christ-centered life in a Christ-hating world, of course you're going to receive persecution. The world hates Jesus. If you live like Christ, if you follow after Christ, if you teach the words of Christ, the world will hate you too. Why would they hate Christ but love you if you look and you live as Christ lived? Christian, don't be surprised by this. Of course the world is going to hate you. Of course the world is going to persecute you. For one, you do not belong here. And people do not like what is different from them. I think that's a natural and a sinful tendency that most people have. The hatred of that which is different from them. That's why there is racial tension. That's why there is hatred towards those with different ethnic backgrounds. That's why there's this feeling of superiority over those that are not like us. And we see this all throughout the world in many different ways. People tend to hate that which is different from them. And if this is the way that people 
in the world, treat and think about others that are still in the world, even with their subtle differences, how much more will those in the world treat and think about those who are not of this world? You understand what I'm saying? Christian, we are citizens of a different kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world. We are new creations. We are truly different Christian. At least we ought to be. And so you can expect hatred and persecution. There's a far greater difference between a, a, let's say, a non-Christian and a non-Christian, both with, with, let's say, that they have different skin colors, than there is between a Christian and non-Christian with with the same skin color. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm trying to say this, that, that being in Christ, Being part of his kingdom, being born again, it causes and it creates the biggest difference and separation between any two humans. Bigger than anything else. Bigger than the difference of our our race, of our skin color, of of our wealth, socioeconomic backgrounds, whatever. These differences that separate us as humans, they're nothing compared to the difference between being in Christ and being part of his kingdom. You are different, Christian. And as you live out those differences, you will be hated. But are you living out those differences? Christian, are you living out those differences? Are you living like Christ? Or are you not much different from the world? Is there not much of a difference for them to hate? And secondly, why why is the world going to hate you? Because... Christian, you are identified in Christ. And the world hated Christ. And so they will hate you. And this is really the core of it all. This is the main reason for persecution against Christians. The world hates God. And if given the chance, they would kill God. In fact, they did. God in the flesh. They crucified they hated him so much that the only thing they could figure was, was to unjustly condemn him as a criminal and to have him brutally murdered by the hands of sinful man. That's where their hatred drove them. And they would do it again if they could. But they can't. And since they can't, they instead will lay hands against his people. And this happens in various ways and it happens in various forms, but indeed it does happen. You have to understand, Christian, the world, the world does not hate you because of, because of you. You, you. You are nothing in yourself. But they hate you because you are in Christ. And they hate Christ. And as you live for Christ, and as you live like Christ, the world will hate you more and more. Christian, are you living in such a way that shows your identity in Christ? Are you living a sacrificial life unto God, a life that is different, a life that would bring on persecution? Or are you blending into the world, avoiding any kind of conflict, any kind of reason for the world to have a problem with you? Now, I think it might look a little different here where we are, I will say, than most parts of the world. And that could be a good thing and that times could be a bad thing. But I think we, we specifically here in the United States of America, we, we experience the persecution for our faith in a far less degree than, than anywhere else in the world. And we're blessed because of this. We are. 
I, I don't think we, we often fully understand what kind of a blessing it is to have the freedoms that we have, that we're able to even be here and have our doors open and unlocked for anyone to come in and us not worry of us being persecuted because of it. That we can openly pray out in public. That we can openly read our Bible out in public and speak the name of Jesus without really any fear of much consequence. These are freedoms that many people across the world do not have. Our brothers and sisters in Christ do not have. We are blessed because of this. But I ask you, how are you using that blessing? How are you using the blessing that God has given you here in this country with these freedoms? Are you using this blessing just to hide? To to live a a, a lukewarm Christian life? To to live a a soft and timid Christian life that, that shares Christ with others when it's convenient, but as soon as any kind of minor persecution comes up, you back down. To, to, to read God's word, to pray to God when, when it's convenient, but as soon as it comes at a cost, at sacrifice and other things in life, then, then never mind, I'm not going to do it. There are hundreds, there are thousands of people across the world that would die to have the freedoms that you have. Literally, they have died, and literally they risked their lives. There are those who do die. Because they do what you can do with your freedom, but instead you choose not to. Such as read the word of God. Do you use your freedoms, these blessings, to hide? Or do you use these freedoms, these blessings, to live boldly for Christ? Recognize that God has blessed you and he has placed you here. And you are able to use your freedoms openly and to openly live and to openly share about the good news of Jesus Christ. Use this gift of God. Be a good steward of what he has given you and live boldly for him. Let us not be scared of minor persecution. We have a unique opportunity that we live in a place where the persecution is minimal. And so we can, we have access to share openly. Let's use it. Not hide it. Christian, are you living your life in such a way that would bring persecution into your life? If not, then I challenge you to start living more like Christ and to start living more for Christ. Next, although we're still in verse 14, as we see love the enemy who persecutes, we see that the Christian is to respond to persecution with blessing, not curses. Right there in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless, and do not curse them. Now Paul already gave some pretty radical exhortations for the Christian to love other Christians with, with, with such a deep love. You might remember last week to love with an agape love, to love like God loves. And as radical as it may be, I think for most people, we feel like we can get behind that or at least see the logical reasoning behind it. That of what he's saying to love other Christians, that we're to love other Christians in the same way that God loves. Like, of course, we're, we, we, we are family of God, Like even though it may be difficult and it is a challenge and in some ways may seem radical. I think at the end of the day, most of us can get behind it and say, all right, I understand why we should love other Christians. 
But here Paul takes it a step further. He raises the stakes. He says we are to love our enemies, those who persecute us. And he says in two ways, just in this verse, he says in a positive and negative. He says we are to bless them in a positive way and we are to not curse them in a negative way. And I'm not sure which is harder. I think they really go hand in hand. It's difficult not to curse our enemies because when someone hurts us, our natural instinct is often what? To strike back. When someone hurts us, we wish harm upon them. And the more we live for Christ, and the more we receive persecution, the more the temptation will be to wish harm or to curse those who persecute us. Because if we're living a life that, that does not bring persecution, then we will likely not often be, be tempted to want to curse those who persecute us. Because there's not likely going to be scenarios in which we will be persecuted. But as we live more and more for the Lord, and as we face various forms of persecution, we may be tempted to want to curse those who persecute us. And when he says curse, okay, don't, he's not saying putting some magical spell or some slithering black magic on them. Like that's, not, that's not what he's talking about. Or the, the word for curse here is, is talking about like wishing evil upon them or, or, or praying against them or, or wanting what's bad for them, doing a wrong to them, right? This is the cursing which he's talking about. The way in which we are to love our enemies, even those who persecute us, is to not curse them. He's going to explain more of that in the following verses. And instead of cursing our enemies, Paul says we are to bless them. Now what does it mean to bless them? To bless our enemies, it, it, it means a lot of different things. It means to pray for them. It means to pray that God would bless them. It is to ask God to do good for them. To seek to do good even yourself. That you yourself do good for them. That we are to actively and genuinely show love to, yes, even our enemies. That we are to bless them. Bless our enemies. It's very similar to what Jesus says in Luke 6. Sorry, let me turn there. Luke 6, 27 and 28. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. That's a tall order. That's one of those things where people say, that's a lot easier said than done. Love those who hate me? Bless those who curse me? What am I supposed to be, a doormat? I just let people walk all over me? No, what you're meant to be is a follower of Christ. What you're meant to be is obedient to Christ. What you're meant to be is an example and a light of Christ. Are you more concerned about being a doormat than you are of being an obedient follower, an example of Christ to others? Christian, we are to love our enemies. We are to bless them and not curse them. Let us just pause and reflect for a moment on the way in which God has loved every Christian. For we too were once his enemies. Do you not remember? 
Romans 5, 8 through 10 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It says that while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Christian, you were God's enemy. Do not forget that. And even while you were God's enemy, look at the great way in which he has loved you. You did not make yourself this this lovable, righteous, Christian-like person that God just, ooh, I just can't resist. Look at look at Joe. Ooh, let me love him. That's not what happened. Sorry, Joe. No, you were a wretched sinner, drenched in your sin, rebellious against God, cursing God in your heart, wanting nothing to do with him. And it is in that state in which God dragged you to himself, it says in John 6, 44. He dragged you to himself out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2, 9. And he sacrificed his son for you. And he chose to love you even when you did not love him, 1 John 4, 10. You were his enemy. And yet he loved you. Are you so much greater than God? That God's so weak that that God would love you, an enemy. He would love you in such a great way. But no, not you. You cannot love your enemy. Who do we think we are? Christian, we are to respond to our enemies. We are to respond to persecution with blessings, not curses. So we've seen that we are to love the enemy who persecutes. Now we see that we're to love the enemy in these ways. And he, he lists these ways in verse 15 through 21. And in these, these next seven verses, Paul lists several practical ways in which we can love our enemies. This is where we'll spend the remaining of our time. First, we'll see that we are to love your enemy like you would another believer. Love your enemy like you would another believer. Let me read 15 and 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, people interpret the context and the intent of Paul in these two verses differently. Uh, And I'll explain the differences. Some will take these two verses and say, Paul is speaking about how the Christian is to love other Christians. Okay, that, 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 that he kind of took a break. He was talking about love for Christians, remember last week? And then now he's talking about enemies. And then here he's talking about loving Christians again. And then he'll talk about enemies again. And, 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 and that, that makes sense in a way because the, the way he speaks in these two verses sounds very much like how a Christian should treat another Christian. And it would be odd that a Christian would treat a non-Christian, let alone an enemy, in these ways. So therefore, people assume Paul is going back to talking about how a Christian is to love one another just for these two verses. But I disagree. You see, I I think this is exactly his point. I don't believe Paul is switching back to talking about a Christian is to love other Christians, going back and forth between the two, uh, loving a Christian, then loving an enemy, and then loving a Christian, and now back to an enemy. I don't think so. I think he already talked about how a Christian is to love other Christians in verses 9 through 13. And then now in verse 14, he shifts his attention to Christians loving their enemies. And the point is that it does seem odd. 
It does seem odd that a Christian would love an enemy in these ways. And yet, that is the calling for every Christian. It does seem odd. But the Christians to love their enemy even as they would other believers. And here in these two verses, I think we see three ways in which Paul describes ways that, that would seem like he's talking about loving other Christians, but really I think his emphasis is still on loving your enemies. And, and those three ways are this. The first is that we are to love with empathy. In verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those with, uh, who weep. Paul's talking about empathy. He's talking about relating so closely with the other person that you feel as they feel, almost as if what has happened to them has also happened to you. This removes superficiality. It's, it's not just saying, oh man, I'm sorry to hear that. Or, ah, I pray for you. And that's it. But it is a genuine concern. It is feeling and, and relating to, to what they feel. That in their highs and in their lows, you are experiencing it with them. In their sorrows, you are sorrowful. In their rejoicing, you are rejoicing. In some cases, this, this might come easier than others. For instance, if you, if you attend a funeral, let's say with your friend or family member, you, you likely weep with them. You, you likely be able to feel that, that pain that they're feeling, at least to an extent. And on the, on the opposite side, with rejoicing, let's say your, your friend gets a new puppy. Oh, I'll rejoice with you. Yeah, like the puppy is so cute, right? You're rejoicing. All right, we're happy. Those are usually easier times to show empathy, but it's not always that easy. It's harder to rejoice with those who rejoice when you feel like they don't deserve the praise. You do instead. And so you choose not to rejoice with them. Because in your envious heart, you, you want the rejoicing to be for you. It's harder to weep with those who weep when, when you feel like it's not really a big deal. Why are they weeping? You don't feel like it's something to weep about. You, you don't feel like that. like if you were in that situation, you'd be weeping. In fact, you've, you've gone through worse. Why don't they just get over it? Sometimes it's hard to show true empathy towards others. And it's even harder when this person is your enemy. Keep that in mind. Why feel as they feel? Why rejoice when they rejoice? Why weep when they weep? Why have any empathy for your enemy? This is a radical call to love our enemies in this way. Do you have empathy for your enemies? Do you rejoice with those who rejoice? Do you weep with those who weep? How else do we see that we're to love Enemies like we are to love one another. We are to love with peace, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. We're to love with peace. Not just empathy, but also peace. Remember, he's talking about how we are to interact with our enemies. And by definition of enemy, we're not supposed to be at peace with them. We're supposed to defeat them. But here we see that we are to be at peace with our enemies. That we are to live in harmony with them. And yet when you look at the way... That many in the church interact with the world around them. It does not look like living in harmony, sadly. Why is it that so often it appears as if Christians are just out there to pick fights? Like Christians have a specific mission and assignment to go and pick fights with everyone that thinks differently than them. Are we to stand up for truth? Yes. 
But that doesn't mean actively destroying and belittling those who disagree with us. We are called to love others and to win them over to the gospel. Not to drag them outside and beat them over the head with the Bible until they agree, agree with this! <laughs> it does not work that way. We are to speak truth, but we're also to love our enemies with peace. And as he concludes verse 16, I would say that we're also to love with humility. Empathy and peace and humility. He says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. In humility, we are to associate and reach out to those who seem to be in lower position than us. Newsflash, the gospel is not for upper class citizens only, the elite. No, the gospel is for all. We're not to hold the gospel for those who we think are deserving of it. We're not to withhold the gospel to just those who we like. The gospel is for all. You see, if if that were not the case, then the gospel would never have reached you. For you and me, we were found by God when we were at the bottom. Do not for a second think that you are deserving of the gospel and are deserving of God's love more than your enemy is. We need to stop thinking of others as being beneath us and realize that we are all equal at the cross and we are all beneath God. Do you realize that you were someone's enemy when the gospel reached you? That someone was God. And yet he reached to you and he pulled you out of slavery to your sin and he saved you. The gospel is for your enemy as well. In humility, realize that you are just as undeserving of God's love as your enemy is. Bring the gospel to the lowly. Bring the gospel to the foolish. Bring the gospel to your enemy. Next, in verse 17, we see love your enemy by doing what is right. Love your enemy by doing what is right. Verse 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. What Paul's getting at is living in such a way that that leads the way in doing what is right. Okay, You're living in a way that leads the way in doing what's right. Leon Morris, I like how he put it. He put it this way. He says that Paul is, quote, calling on them to live out the implications of the gospel. Their lives are to be lived on such a high plane that even the heathen will recognize the fact. They will always be living in the sight of non-Christians. And the way they live should be such as to commend the essential Christian message. End quote. The point is this. It is a loving thing to do to live as Christ. To be a light in the dark world and to show them the difference that Christ makes in your life. Do not be afraid. Do not be ashamed to live differently, to live in a way contrary to the way the world thinks, and instead to live in a way that is doing what is right. Do not be afraid of that. We live in a very sinful and perverted world. 
And despite its, its obvious stench of sin, we, we are still tempted to, to live and to respond as the world would live and respond. When there are enemies, when there are persecutors, we are not to respond in the way of the world. But instead, we are to do what is right. We are to respond in a way that is consistent with the gospel, not consistent with the sinful world. Are you shining the light of Christ? Are you living in a way that leads the way of others to follow you as you follow Christ? The non-Christian world is watching. Will you conform to their way of living? Or will you live as a beacon of light, as an example of Christ in their lives? Next, what we see... A little bit of a bigger chunk. We'll spend a little time here. Verses 18 through 20. Love your enemy by being a peacemaker. Love your enemy by being a peacemaker. Allow me to read verses 18 through 20. It says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. These are some startling verses. And they're really significant. Especially in the sense that it's the first time in this letter that Paul has spoken about horizontal peace. He spoke about vertical peace. In Romans 5.1, remember? Incredible verse. <clears throat> Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What incredible truth that because of the incredible finished work of Jesus Christ and our faith in Him, we now have peace. We have vertical peace with God. Remember, Christian, we were his enemies, but now, because of Christ, we have peace with God. That is the vertical peace that Paul has already spoken about. But now we see that we are to have peace, not just with God, but with humans as well, horizontal peace. And in this case, horizontal peace even with our enemies. There are three aspects I want to look at regarding this peace with our enemies. The first is this. If possible, he says. If possible. There's a sense of realism here. Not absoluteness. It is not always possible to be completely at peace with someone. And let me explain two situations to prove that point. It's not always possible to be completely at peace with someone. First, truth cannot be violated or sacrificed in any way. You understand that? Truth cannot be violated or sacrificed or compromised in any way. Yes, we are to be at peace with our enemies. But naturally, the world will have different beliefs than the Christian. And we are not to compromise the truth of God for the sake of peace in the world. And it's a sad thing to see churches crumble under the pressures of the world at the expense of holding fast to God's truth. We do not compromise the truth of God, ever, for 
It is His very Word. And there will be times that the world will not and cannot be at peace with you because of it. And if that is the case, then let it be so. We are to be at peace if possible, he says. But God's word trumps. Another situation would be this. That the other other party may not allow you to be at complete peace with one another. He says to be at peace so far as it depends on you. And there are times when peace cannot be reached because it takes both parties to agree to be at peace. For true peace to occur, you need both parties. But it is within ourselves, in our own responsibility, to be at peace with all men, he says. So far as it depends on you, he says. We are to exhaust all options to be at peace with them. We are to try all that we can to be at peace. Not say, well, they haven't talked to me in months. So that's on them. Just waiting for them. No. It's on you too. You are to initiate the peace. You are to seek reconciliation. You are to do all you can to be at peace with all men. We must put away all grudges. We must put away all bitterness, all resentment, and fully forgive them in our own hearts. We are to seek reconciliation from our side and hope that they will seek it on their side as well. But at the end of the day, they may not want to reconcile with you. And they may remain hostile to you. And to that point, be at peace if possible so far as it depends on you. See the difference? So... Three aspects I want us to look at regarding peace with our enemies is that first, if it's possible, secondly, is restraint, that we must have restraint. We must have self-control in having peace with our enemies. And, And there are two startling statements that Paul makes here. Never avenge yourself and leave it to the wrath of God. Never avenge yourself? Really? Never? What does it mean to avenge? To be an avenger. No. To, to avenge, it means to, to, to inflict harm in, in return for being wronged, right? Like you've been wronged, and so you're going to avenge yourself. You're now going to inflict harm in return of being wronged. Remember, in light of living a sacrificial life to God, you will likely at some point receive some kind of persecution. And Paul says, when that happens, when your enemy harms you, whatever that may look like, do not avenge yourself. Never, he says. He says, never avenge yourself, verse 19. Not at all. Not ever. And the second thing he says is, leave it to the wrath of God. We are to trust that God is a just God. This is a comforting truth. But we must not let it become a hateful or unloving truth. Lest we completely miss the point Paul's talking about. It is a comforting, it is comforting to know that all wrongs will be dealt with. God is a just God. Christian, you will be wronged, and others may get away with it. They may not get their due punishment here on earth, and that may not sit right with you. And there's a sense in which that's okay, because we should desire justice. God is a just God. But no, that is not the end. 
Know that no sin goes unlooked or unpunished by God. Vengeance belongs to God. Not to you, but to God. And he will deal with every sin. And either he has already dealt with it on the cross as he poured his wrath on his son, or he will deal with it on judgment day. But know that vengeance belongs to God and no sin will go unpunished. And the same is true for our sins. If you are a Christian, your sins have been fully dealt with through Christ on the cross. God is a just God and your sins were imputed onto him and he bore the wrath on your behalf. And if you are not a Christian, you still carry the weight and the consequences of your own sins. And either you will pay an account for it through all of eternity or you can repent of your sins and accept the gift of salvation through Christ in which he absorbed it on your behalf. The third way in which we can have peace with our enemies is through goodness. Through goodness. Paul has another striking statement. Instead of avenging yourself for the wrongs that your enemy has committed against you, Paul takes it a step further and he says, give to them. He says, don't avenge them. Instead, give to them. And and they're like, what are you talking about, Paul? Come on. Louis says, to the contrary, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. What? It's actually similar to what Jesus says in Luke 6. Luke 6, let me read verse 29. We were in Luke 6 earlier. It's a great passage here. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Jumping down to 33. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return. Christians are called to respond to our enemies in a different way than the world does. We are to respond in love. We are to respond in giving. In giving to our enemies. We are to do good to our enemies. And then Paul says later in verse 20. For by doing so you will heap burning coals on their heads. Now there's a lot of question and debate on what Paul are you talking about here. And what I don't think it means is that if we want to hurt them and get back at them in the worst possible way, then we are to do good to them. And that will hurt them tremendously because their guilt is what hurts most of all. And it's possible. Some people take it that way. It's possible, but I, I don't think so. I, I, I think, I think that, that that is missing the point of the context of love and the context of not avenging yourself. I think the point here is, is to win them over because they cannot bear it. Just like someone cannot bear the punishment of, of heaping coals over their heads, right? They, 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 it, it's unbearable over time. And in the same way, it's frustrating, it's unbearable to receive love from someone in whom you continue to persecute and harm. And I think the goal is to win them over with love in order to present opportunity for the gospel. Not to have a constant back and forth battle. Oh, I hate you, I hate you, let me fight, let's fight. No, but instead to respond in love. Which leads right into the next verse. Verse 21, he says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our last point. 
Love your enemy by overcoming evil with good. Love your enemy by overcoming evil with good. Again, we see a negative and a positive response here. Do not, that's the negative, be overcome by evil. But overcome, the positive, but overcome evil with good. To not be overcome by evil means a couple of things. First, we, we, we must not let the evil done to us overcome us or, or, or overwhelm us. There is sin running rampant in this world. There is evil all around us. And it can be overwhelming. But Christian, persevere. Do not be overcome. Do not be overwhelmed. But find strength in the Lord in the midst of an overwhelmingly evil world. And another aspect of not being overcome by evil is to not let our own evil overcome us. Or even that of the world. I mean, this, this would go directly against everything Paul had just been talking about. This would be responding evil with evil. It, it would be to fight back. It would be to avenge yourself. It is the natural, sinful, human thing to do. But it is not what we are called to do. Do not be overcome by evil. By the evil of others or by the evil within yourself. Do not let the remaining sin in your flesh overcome you. But instead, he says, overcome evil with good. And to overcome evil with good means that we triumph over the evil in the world by doing what is good. When sin is at your doorstep, when evil is done to you and evil is done against you, do not respond with evil. Do not respond to sin with more sin. Instead, respond to sin with doing good, he says. Having the victory over evil. Overcoming evil with good. Jesus is our greatest example, is he not? He's our greatest example of someone who suffered unjustly and yet did not fight back, but instead overcame evil with good. Listen to what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24. When he, that's Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The greatest evil occurred against Christ on the cross. And yet even in that hour of great darkness, Christ was not overcome by evil, but instead overcame evil with good. Do not be overcome with evil, Christian. Instead, overcome the evil in this world with good. The Christian is called to live a sacrificial life to God. And one way in which the Christian is to do this is by loving their enemies. To love our enemies is quite the calling. Maybe it sounds nearly impossible. Maybe you feel like, man, I, I can barely love those close to me. I can barely love my family. I can barely love my friends. I can barely love other Christians. How am I supposed to love my enemies too? And on your own, it is impossible, Christian. 
But it is through God's saving power. It is through his Holy Spirit that we are empowered to love our enemies in this way. Be diligent in pursuing this kind of love towards your enemies. But do so fully dependent on God's strength and his Holy Spirit, which is at work in your life. And most of all, Christian, remember the love of God towards you. Remember that you deserved condemnation, but God overcame evil with good. You were God's enemy, but Christ died for you. You were loved in the greatest way possible. Now go and love the same. If you're not a Christian, you do not know this love. You maybe know it as you hear it and you can recite it, but you don't know it personally. But I invite you to the foot of the cross where God's love is displayed. You are God's enemy. And the wrath of God is upon you. But Christ lived a perfect life. And Christ died on the cross in our place. And Christ rose from the dead, defeating sin. And you can now receive the infinite, unchanging, eternal love of God. Place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and receive the love of God. I want to just close with a time of silent prayer. And I want us to reflect on loving our enemies. Maybe first reflect on the love of God and the great love in which he has towards his people. If you're a Christian, reflect on that and reflect on those in whom it is difficult for you to love. And ask that God would give you the strength to love them. If you're not a Christian, maybe use this time to reflect on the love of God and the gift of salvation he offers through faith in Jesus Christ. Ask that he would grant that to you. Take a couple minutes of silent prayer. And then I'll close this in prayer.